There are two broad AI capabilities that get increasing search volume on emerj.com, our website, emerge.com. When people land on the page, a lot of the time they're just going to click the articles that are on the homepage or maybe look at the menu and select healthcare, finance, whatever they're interested in for topics. But when they do use the search bar at the top of the site, uh, two big trends in the last six months, one of which is computer or machine vision. Lots and lots of folks typing in computer and machine vision. And the second biggest term, the term that people are more curious about when they come to the site and want to search for content, is natural language processing, or NLP. Lots of volume for those terms on emerge.com. Uh, we have content on NLP from the legal space, from the marketing space, finance and banking world, you name it. Um, and this week, we focus again in the domain of legal. Uh, Lars Mahler is the chief science officer for Legal Sifter, which is based in Ohio. He got his graduate degree in computer science at Carnegie Mellon. And he speaks with us this week on A, what's possible with AI in the kind of document assessment and legal world today, sort of what are use cases that are viable, that are possible, and B, how that works, how subject matter experts, lawyers, and data scientists, computer scientists, sort of work together to train a system to be able to sort of, to some degree, do the work of a lawyer or at least augment some of the workflows. He also provides some pretty interesting insights into how a company has to make their way into the legal space, the challenges of training an NLP system and finding a niche where you can get a lot of relatively similar content to train an AI system on. I think whether you're building or adopting an AI solution from somewhere else, I think having some of those basic understandings will be useful. So if you're in the legal space, this episode's a no-brainer. But if you just want to know, what does it take to get machines to master text? What does it take to get machines to help augment the workflows of humans who are dealing with huge volumes of text on a daily basis? Uh, this episode surely will be helpful. So without further ado, I'm Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI and Industry, and this is Lars with Legal Sifter. Let's get started. So Lars, where I figured we would get started here is just getting a sense of current applications of AI and NLP in the domain of legal. In the past, we've talked a bit about uh, understanding legal language with algorithms, about what facets of sort of the paperwork and processes in the legal world might be able to be augmented. What's your take there in terms of what's possible today? I think we're seeing this AI being used in several areas in the legal space. One area is in the area of contract review and negotiation. So if you think about a, a typical contract negotiation, you've got two parties. Usually you're starting out with a template, a draft contract from one party, and then the other party is having to review that contract. So you're reviewing it, making edits, going back and forth, edits and revisions till both parties are satisfied. So this process can be really painful. Contracts are painful. They're not fun to read. And if you're the counterparty and you're reviewing the other party's paper, it's kind of a cognitive load. You're having to read and understand their language. You're having to identify provisions that are in the contract, but that you do not want in there. So hidden yeah. grenades. Yep, yep. You're having to identify provisions that are missing, but should be in the contract. And you're having to check provisions to make sure that they're compliant with your organization standards. So for a lot of lawyers and legal professionals, this is probably one of their least favorite tasks. It's hard. There's not much glory in doing it well. But if they mess up, you know, there's a lot of risk either for their company or their personal reputation. So that's how it's typically done today, how it's been done in the past. Um, but now with AI, we're starting to see AI supported contract review. 
And so these applications, what they do is they will read your contract. They're going to identify all the terms and provisions, tell you what's there, help you find those hidden grenades. So for example, in a non-disclosure agreement, there's a type of clause called a residuals clause. It's not very common, but it has some adverse consequences for the disclosing party. So, you know, it can spot those kind of hidden or tricky clauses. Yeah. So, and, and just to dive into sort of how this would shake out, I think the audience is from tuning in for a little while, those you've been here for a bit, familiar with some of the basic workings of, of NLP. My supposition here, uh, Lars, and you can let me know if I'm wrong, is that you drink in enough contracts of this kind in, into an NLP system and you can come up with sort of clusters and categories for things. Uh, now, I would imagine that there's maybe some commonalities from, let's say, contract to contract. There's also probably a lot of unique things. And you know, When you talk about a clause, this big, long, jargony sentence really means we owe them X if Y happens. Mm-hmm. Simplifying legalese to simple English, particularly in, in niche cases that aren't rote, that don't maybe exist in a somewhat similar fashion in a thousand other contracts, 10,000 other contracts, that does feel challenging. So which which of these clauses are kind of call-outable with a, with a pre-trained system of this kind? And, and what does that look like, just so the audience can kind of get a sense of what's possible here? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. To really do well in finding the clause, you typically need a lot of examples, and they're going to perform best on sentences that look very similar to what they've seen in the past. So really, any concept, as long as you have enough data and enough variety in your training data, you can learn that concept pretty well. But to your point, if you've got a long sentence and you've got that concept kind of buried in the sentence or worded in a tricky way, you may see that the AI misses it in that context. Just like a person might, right? I mean, it's it's really hard if a person hasn't seen the same kind of thing a hundred times for them to call it out. So the things that are identifiable, you know, a lot of the time, my supposition for these kind of applications is a lot of the time we start off with a niche. Obviously, for you folks, contract review is is the niche. Even then, mm-hmm. often we're starting in a niche. If you have an unlimited number of kinds of contracts, I don't think you're dealing with much Mongolian. I don't think you're dealing with what's in, uh, you know, pardon me for not knowing what they speak in the Netherlands, but Dutch or something. We got English contracts and, and probably they're of certain kinds, maybe leases, maybe a commercial leases. Maybe we're talking about, you know, software as a service type contracts or just general service agreements with kind of consulting firms. You got to find a niche that's open to new tech and a niche that's also big enough to be able to build a company and a niche that's going to have similar enough clauses, you know, you can find those commonalities. Like you were saying, Lars, you know, you, you need to have something that that's actually registered a few times with the system for it to call it out. Where did you guys decide to knuckle down? Because I can imagine, again, you can't start with all contracts. Where did you guys point the cannon for, for your own system over there at Legal Sifter? We started out with NDAs. And the reason for that is NDAs are pervasive. Everybody signs them. It's the starting point to a business relationship. So it really seemed like a great place to start. And then after that, we basically went sort of one contract type at a time based on the needs of our earliest adopters. Got it. Yeah, see, land land and expand. Some of the people listening in are uh, vendor companies or startups themselves. They'll similarly have to understand how this worked. But I guess you guys, okay, so you went with NDAs initially and then sort of built on whatever everybody else was screaming, hey, we need more of this or we need more of that. And that's kind of how it has to work, right? For a firm like you guys or for any other firm, you know, as as this space is eaten by AI, it will be eaten by people who 
pick a beachhead, really own it, are able to quote unquote understand with AI because they've they've seen so many similar documents and been able to label them, categorize them, and get feedback on them and approve that that, that those labels were were proper, and then sort of creep out into new capabilities kind of gradually. Is is that the way that this legal space will be kind of augmented to some degree, or am I missing a bigger part of the dynamic here? In this space, that's exactly how it will be. Yes. As land and expand and then Wherever you've landed, it's just getting better and better through feedback. Yeah. And and I guess talk to us a bit about that feedback. Um, you know, we can talk about near-term consequences of AI in legal, which I'm sure you have to think about a lot. And I think everybody loves to understand sort of where things are headed. But just to put a cap on this first idea that you've brought up, you know, this idea of feedback Definitely critical. I mean, for the audience tuned in, some might be familiar, some might not, to sort of label a contract, okay, this means this, this means this, this implies these things, and here's the six instances of this kind of statement, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I would presume there has to be some loop of whoever you're, maybe it's your user, or maybe, maybe it has to be done within your own firm or something. Someone has to say, yeah, those are right. Those are right. Those are right. Okay, that doesn't actually mean that. That's not right. That also doesn't mean that. So there's to be some sort of like, okay, cool. These things went well. And no, those labels actually don't work here. And then some of that continual sort of feedback is going to be what refines the ability to coax those out. How does that work if we just take the NDA for one? That's a great question. So we we have a feedback loop. It's called the Sifter Trainer. So you know, if we get a false positive or false negative, our customers can report that to us. But the thing is, you don't want to just blindly take feedback and incorporate it into your model because they may not have the same understanding of what that model is supposed to be doing or that sifter is supposed to be doing. So we have a review process where when we get that feedback, we'll review it. If we agree, we just accept it and it loops back in, makes the model better. If we disagree, then there's a communication loop to the client to help them understand the intent of the sifter. Yeah. Okay. I like this dynamic here, Lars, because as as the world becomes more mature in understanding AI, people are understanding that this is an inevitable dynamic that has to happen. In other words, when we want to train a system, we need subject matter experts who can figure out if these outputs are working, but we also need them to be able to interact with the system in a way that works and lets it upgrade, right? So for you guys, you'll take the subject matter expert feedback, but then you need to make sure that maybe it's it's the right format or it's the right structure, it's the right kind of feedback or it's feedback provided in the right way where if we loop that back in, it's actually going to help the system improve as opposed to, you know, maybe not not really be something that a system could per se understand. So it seems like we have kind of that mix of subject matter expertise and data scientists as part of this ongoing loop between kind of vendor and client. Yes. And really with NLP, things can get very ambiguous very quickly. So you know, that's why we have to have that sort of internal review step. Because if we just blindly accepted feedback, there's a risk that we could sort of let the model drift off course and turn into something that we didn't originally intend. And I could see that being somewhat dangerous there. And and I think p- folks, I think, need to understand that in order to sort of consistently provide feedback to a system and have it improve, at least today, it's not really possible to pull that off without some kind of data science expertise helping to manage that feedback process. I don't think I can think of any great examples of AI where you just have subject matter experts kind of bark back at the system, whether it's, you know, labeling or saying things or whatever, and that without really having some ability to groom and understand that from a data science kind of context, we can just make a system better by itself. It seems like That's both, right. both of those parties are necessary. Really to create and make these models better, it's really a combination of data scientists and 
lawyers or yep. subject matter experts. Yep. And it, it's, you know, the vendor game, the world that you guys are in, part of the positioning here is that, hey, a lot of these law firms or whoever's using the product, they may or may not have massive horde of NLP experts sort of on call. But if you guys can be the data science part of the equation, then they can just keep the subject matter expertise part of the equation. And then it's worthy arrangement. Makes sense business model wise as well. I guess we'll talk a little bit on the near term implications side of things. You know, you're mentioning that the NDA world and some of the other documents you guys are moving into, we're familiar to some degree with what Reuters is doing and what some of the other startups in this space are doing. Lots of different landing and expanding, lots of different ways to maybe augment and simplify some of this very ugly sifting through, at least to non-lawyers, very ugly English. What does that mean for kind of the future of law? What does that mean for in-house lawyers and big firms, uh, for, for law firms in general? Where do you see that dynamic taking the field? You know, I see all of these AI tools as productivity tools. I mean, they're, they're really cool productivity tools. Pretty much for all the players, can they figure out a way to use the, do, do the tools solve a problem that they actually have? And if so, how are they going to incorporate those tools into their process? Yeah, workflows, right? That's right. So this use case I just described, you know, the lawyers are using it almost as a spell check or a second pair of eyes. So they're using these to double check and make sure that they haven't missed anything. You know, if they're reviewing late at night or under tight deadlines, this is a second pair of eyes for them. For large corporations, a lot of times you have in-house counsels who are overwhelmed and they've got many people sort of on the front lines of sales and they need contracts reviewed stat, but those contracts, it's taking two weeks to get through in-house counsel. So what they're doing is they're using this to sort of take the knowledge and insight from their in-house counsel and inject that knowledge into the applications and then allow anybody on the front lines to review and negotiate contracts without going to the in-house counsel. Got it. So I guess different use cases for different groups of people. I think part of the trick maybe for the ecosystem of folks providing these services like yourselves is, can we fit into a workflow where we could actually work? Like you said, okay, you have a tired person staying up late, they need an extra pair of eyes, you know, bang, maybe there's enough of those, there's enough of that overlap, and maybe those people are open to using a tool so we can fit ourselves in there. So yeah, it's, it sounds like yeah, finding those little niches where you can kind of burrow in and then become a part of the process. You're describing it in a way that from an AI vendor perspective is kind of downplaying. It's a very non-hypey description of saying, these are productivity tools. Is that a description? <laughs> is that No, no, I like it. I, I frankly like it. I'm not going to knock that definition at all. I think, you know, in many respects, that's kind of it. A lot of people will say like, well, this is how it's going to revolutionize the AI robots will do all the legal stuff. Uh, you're just saying, well, these are productivity tools. They'll help people achieve a result. Do you think that it will be that kind of a gradual, you know, efficiency improvements more or less as AI continues to creep its way in? What does that mean? Uh, to some degree, little workflows start to become more augmented, start to potentially become more efficient. Is that the chip away process that continues or are there other dynamics to be wary of? I think so. And first of all, just to clarify, <laughs> I think AI is awesome. So yeah, well, yeah. I don't want to underwrite it. You, you didn't come across like you were insulting AI. Uh, yeah. I just, you were less hypey than a vendor would be, maybe yeah, because yeah. of our preparation. But uh, yeah, your language was very frank and I appreciated it. It's so fun. I mean, there's so many cool things you can do with it. But at the end of the day, that's what people are using it for. They're using it to make people more productive. They're not using robots to replace lawyers. What I'm seeing so far, 2018 seemed to be a year of sort of, in the legal space, awareness and education. So when we were having conversations with law firms, in-house counsel, other groups, a lot of the questions they were asking is, you know, what is AI? What can it do? Yeah, what we're past a little bit of that now, aren't we? 
Yeah, towards the end of the year, it's completely changed. Everybody's aware of what it is, what it can do. Now they're figuring out, you know, how can I use it in my business? And if so, how? So I believe, I don't think there's going to be a big bang. I just believe it's going to be a steady, gradual adoption. And I believe it's just, you know, it's not going to be that 2019 is the big bang year where everybody adopts every tool. This year, the next year, the next year, the next year, it's going to become pervasive. And the tools will be better. I certainly hope so. And I sort of wonder, you know, if you look at, maybe this is tough to say from just your vantage point, but you might have a gut check on this that is better than that of the audience, almost certainly. You know, you look out five years into the legal space. Are there going to be facets of legal work that really are relegated to humans today that you just really think are are kind of the low-hanging fruit where that's sort of where the machine value is going to live and the human value will float to other things? You know, are there areas where you really see kind of being subsumed by a really robust set of tools from a variety of different providers. You know, like you said, it's not like this stuff is going to take over lawyers. And as a vendor selling into that space, you certainly would have to be wary of claims of that kind. But, you know, I think there probably will be some stuff that, that maybe machines can can handle pretty doggone well and let humans move along to other stuff. Is there a way for you to nutshell what your guess would be if you were a betting man in five years as to what those areas are? Yeah, I would say... All of the work that lawyers hate will be solved by AI. It's that routine stuff, the drudgery, combing through hundreds or thousands of documents. You know, AI is going to take that away. It's going to let them focus their time on the brain work, the higher order judgments and decisions and and things like that. And is that going to change how maybe even the education of lawyers goes down? You know, when, when sort of these rote things are less a part of what you actually have to do on a day to day basis, because sort of regular tech when when this becomes normal can kind of just tackle it for you. Is that going to change maybe what these folks ought to be learning in school as they head off into the world? I'm sure there's all kinds of skills in legal that became less relevant with the ubiquity of computers and the internet. Uh, I imagine with AI, maybe it's similarly going to be so where some kinds of research or some kinds of mm. composition of legal documents will, will just almost never be people stuff. You know, do you think it's going to at some point have to trickle to a change in education or is five years maybe too soon for that? I think five years is not too soon. I think to be successful lawyers, they don't have to be AI experts, but they will need to understand what AI does and and the basic sort of functions it can perform and how to use it well. And that should be taught in law schools now. Years ago, I think lawyers were being taught how to use search techniques and LexisNexis and things like that. I think a lot of that search is going to be automated in the future. So they may not need to know that. Cool. Okay. So yeah, when you're trained on what your normal day-to-day workflows are, well, those day-to-day workflows now might involve AI and you're going to have to have a basic grasp of it. That's right. So last question here, Lars, before we wrap up, I just want to make sure I can tuck this in here, is to get a sense of where adoption is going to happen. You know, whenever we look at a space, we talk to a lot of people in pharma, a lot of people in banking, and then we, we do the horizontals. You know, right now we're talking about legal, which I imagine could could fit into a lot of big companies. I think it's interesting to get your sense of where is the traction and adoption going to happen fastest here? You know, the, the legal space is sort of getting this gradual upgrade, being augmented, as you've articulated. Where will that really hit the ground running first? Where will these augmented tools become the norm first? And what have you seen in terms of the pockets where adoption is hot for this stuff? That's a great question. It's actually been kind of all over the board. We've seen adoption from big law firms. They're trying to keep their fees down and grow their profits, improve their margins. Now, it's not all big law, but certain sort of visionary law firms. We're also seeing adoption within small law firms. They're trying to differentiate themselves and kind of stand out from the crowd. We're also seeing adoption from in-house legal departments. 
you know, these are people with fixed budgets and they're being asked to do more and more. So they're looking for tools to become more efficient. And then there's a lot of software companies like contract lifecycle management companies and other sort of related providers. And they are trying to compete in a very crowded market. So they're embedding AI to try to get that sort of next step advantage. To be honest, it's all over the board. It's hard to make a prediction. I would kind of predict big law firms will be the slowest to change. Huh. Okay, cool. Well, this is me. All right, let's dive into it. So big law firms are slowest. If you're going to roll your dice on on who might be the quickest, is it going to be those other tools who are kind of selling contract management stuff? Is it going to be in-house legal counsel at the big fancy tech companies, you know, your Googles and your, your Amazons? I think across the board, no matter what the solution, I think some of the larger law firms will be the laggards, not all of them. There's definitely a lot of forward thinking ones, but there's also some, for various reasons, they are not on the cutting edge of tech. That seems like a safe thing to say. So, all right. So who's going to be the winner in terms of fastest adoption? Not not that that necessarily makes you cool or anything, but in terms of where adoption is going to work fastest, well, it seems like it's across the board. We have other tech vendors. We have other smaller law firms that want to compete, things like that. In terms of who we expect maybe won't pick up their feet the quickest, maybe you know, that might end up being, you know, the big folks who've done it for a hundred years and uh, they already know how it works. It sounds like your your chips are on them in terms of maybe having, uh, you know, being the slowest. Yeah. And, and like I said, though, there's even within that pocket, there there's are actually some, a lot yeah, of there's some that are turning ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say any one of them stands out because I think actually all of them are, uh, they've seen that the world's changing and within each segment, you've got people who want to be ahead of the curve. I would guess we're going to see some segments pick up faster than others, but it sounds like you don't have a very firm intuition as to which those will be. It'll It'll maybe count on, you know, who wakes up within those companies and says, hey, let's try what's next. Let's let's get into the, the next wave in tech. That's right. Yep. Okay. Note, note taken. Even if you are in a big stodgy law firm, listener, even you might one day be able to adopt artificial intelligence. So, okay, cool. Lars, that's literally all we got for time. Uh, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights here on AI and industry. So thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Dan. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. 